whatever you're doing, uh, do your best. Just just work hard and do your best. And that will naturally take you um, to the next thing, the thing that you might be dreaming about. But until you get there, until you get to this this place that you've been dreaming about, your 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 kind of vision state, just stay focused, work hard, do your best. Welcome to the In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and our next guest, Sid Morgan, has had over 25 years of invaluable experience in the healthcare industry. He has served in leadership roles with industry giants like Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield. He is currently CEO of Aegis Medical Group, a healthcare network made up of over 105 primary care physicians across six locations. In this episode, Sid shares with our listeners some of the most important lessons he's learned from years of managing operations in one of the world's largest, most competitive, and fastest growing industries, healthcare. Please enjoy today's episode with Sid Morgan. Well, Sid, I am so excited to have you here with us today. You're such a great supporter of everything UT. You've been a great supporter of our entrepreneurship program, and you've been a great community member in Tampa Bay and a successful role model for so many of our students. So thank you for coming in today and being part of our program. My pleasure. So you've been VP, President, and CEO of some of the biggest names in healthcare, like Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield. And now you're CEO of Aegis. Is that how it's pronounced? Yes. Aegis Aegis Medical Medical Group. Group. It's a physician group. Can we start by talking about how you got into the healthcare space? And, you know, what was that trajectory like? Absolutely. So I actually started out as a member of the United States Navy, and I was what's called a hospital corpsman. And that is the combat medic for the Marines and medical assistant in peacetime, you know, at the various naval hospitals. And when I finished school, I actually just kind of fell into healthcare. So I had a degree in financial accounting. And like most students, I just needed a job really bad. And so at the time, my goal was to become a CPA. But the job that paid the most was this marketing job. So my studies were finance and accounting, and then I get offered this marketing job. So I'm a farm boy from the Midwest, and I called my parents, who are farmers, and my dad basically said, well, do you think you can do the marketing? And I said, I'm not sure he knew what marketing was. And <laughs> I said, I said, yes. And he goes, well, do that one. And so I did. And that just happened to be with Aetna. And that's how I got into healthcare. How you got started. Yeah, and from there, it was just progressively increasing responsibilities and roles. Now, healthcare is a really interesting space. It's being heavily disrupted. It has been for a few years. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more change. And one of the things I always tell my students when they're looking for opportunities is to look into industries where there's a lot of disruption. So for some of our listeners who are thinking about the healthcare space, 
What have you seen? What do you see coming? What kind of opportunities do you see there? There's a lot of different people who have historically had nothing to do with healthcare entering into our space now. Google, IBM, CVS. Even Amazon, right? Even, even Amazon. And a lot of it is technology, but also a lot of it is access. And I think technology is the thing that people focus on mostly now, but I think access also presents a great opportunity to disrupt healthcare. What do you mean by access? Meaning an individual's ability to feel like they need healthcare and to connect with the service that they need in a number right. of different ways. So, for example, there are all types of monitoring capabilities that one can put into their home. For example, if you have diabetes or COPD or, and your doctor can actually see what's going on with you at home mm -hmm. as long as you, you know, do your part. You stick your finger into a, uh, I think it's called a pulse. Pulsometer? Uh, yeah. Yes. And uh, you, st you, you stick your finger in there. Actually, your doctor can see it across town or across the world. Right. And so a lot of home monitoring kind of devices are out there. Very helpful. Very helpful. We certainly have seen that impact the lives of our patients. This is something that we do. Also, of course, there's telemedicine now. Right. So right. a physician can, again, right now in Central Florida, there is a company where cardiologists in Central Florida are actually treating people in Egypt for their heart disease. And so this is all happening via web chat and video. But I think that the access that entities like Walmart and CVS are trying to create inside their commercial retail spaces, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's going to be very interesting. Healthcare is not a commodity by any means. Mm -hmm. And so there's this trade-off if you zip into a CVS because you have a cold and you really have a cold, well, that's great. That works. That's, that works. If you zip into CVS because you think you have a cold and you actually have something else that doesn't get caught, that's a big problem. Right. So I would say access and technology. My mom, who passed away about a year and a half ago, but she spent a number of years in that system mm -hmm. before she died. She had a few chronic diseases. And I know... For her, one of the most important things was to have somebody listen to her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't get that, do you, a lot of times through technology, not in the same way. And I know, I mean, this is a little tough to talk about, but even when she passed away, the physician didn't come into the hospital room. He mm -hmm. did it via television, mm -hmm. and it, it didn't feel right mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. So, But I do value what you're talking about because when my husband and I were going on a long sailing trip, we were talking with our doctor about ways we could mm -hmm. monitor our health mm -hmm. through that. So there's mm -hmm. a time and a place for everything, I guess, right? In healthcare, it, it, you said it's not a commodity. Ex exactly. What a great example of you can't, no matter what, people try to do with healthcare. It's local. It's actually about our doctors say, if you haven't touched the patient, physically touched the patient, then you probably are not delivering the best care because you have to, you have to talk to the patient. You have to know the patient. You have to, and this listening is so incredibly important. All kinds of things could be going on with a patient. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. We can talk more, I'm sure, about the business side of it and, right. the, and the finances, et cetera. But, you know, our business at the end of the day, someone's sick. 
It could be you or it could be a family member. And many times when it's your family member, it's actually more stressful and painful than when it's it's you. It's hard. Right. And so our industry is and will always be about one doctor taking care of one patient. Mm -hmm. And so there are some things you can do to disrupt it. But I don't see anything that's going to happen that's going to make healthcare any different than that. You know, what's fascinating is I'm listening to you talk. There are some parallels with education because the real impact I think I've had on students has been more one-on-one than any courses I did online or anything, although that serves a purpose for people to get their diplomas and graduate, move on with their lives. But it's a fascinating conversation that you went from the world of insurance, which Mm -hmm. is heavily focused, I'm sure, on cost containment and managing costs. And now you're with a physician's group. How did that transition work? And what's unique about what you're doing now? And I'm guessing it fills up sort of a passion for what you want to do. So when I was with the insurance companies, I actually had, I think, an advantage over a lot of my colleagues who were insurance executives, because the first thing I did in my career was treat patients. So when I was right, in, when you were in the Navy, exactly. Yeah. So when I was in the military, depending on what duty I was handling on any given day, most of the times I was just working in a hospital, just like people would work in a hospital today. Right. We'd check patients in, see the patient, send the patients home. So that's very much like what happens in any physician's office today. And then sometimes you'd be stationed where you're doing kind of your wartime role with a a group of Marines and you're responsible for taking care of them. And so I understood what it meant to take care of a patient. The stress even goes on. And so I always had that with me when I was, Mm -hmm. no matter what insurance company I was with, I understood what happens and when the patient walks through that doctor's office's door. And so that was very helpful. And just later on in my career, I just decided, you know, I think I want to go back to the patient care side. There's a lot of opportunity there. And I think when you start to feel comfortable with yourself and kind of confident in what's important to you in life, you can do a better job of understanding kind of the legacy you want to leave on your way out. And I felt like if I went back to the patient care side, there was so much more I could do. And I knew about this value-based change that was coming to our industry. And I felt like it was going to be something transformative. And so I started to plan as to how I could transition from kind of the health plan, more corporate side of health care to actually being in a physician's office again and and working directly with primary care physicians again. And it's been it's been incredible. You know, there's some really interesting parallels and lessons in there, I think. One is this whole idea of empathy, empathy with the customer, in your case, the patient. And a lot of times when I'm talking with entrepreneurs who want to start up a business, I don't think they fully understand the experience, the customer experience, the user experience, let's call it that. And I think user experience is incredible. But the other interesting one is your ability to understand both the cost side and because I've worked with physicians in a previous life, more from the finance and business side, and they were always very aware that they didn't have that skill set. So 
being able to be a boundary spanner, mm-hmm. spanning the boundary between understanding the financial side right. and the delivery side, I think would be incredibly valuable. And that's something you've been able to bring to this. It has been valuable. And the interesting thing is when I met my partners, the physicians that I started Aegis Medical Group, which is our kind of foundational company. And we also have another company called Primary Care Alliance. Both of these are value-based companies, Aegis, again, being the foundational company. And we were talking about this transition that we needed to make from fee-for-service healthcare to value-based healthcare. There was this big concern about how does that look financially, right? We have to keep the lights on in the clinic. And uh, we have to buy the supplies. Absolutely. So what was interesting is we got into this wonderful conversation about aligning incentives. The physicians had this passion for, I want to spend more time with my patients. Right, right. Particularly my sick patients. You know, I, I want to be able to spend 45 minutes with a patient if I have to. And it's impossible under this fee for service. And so by helping them understand how they could actually change the financial model and create an opportunity for them to spend more time with their sick patients while at the same time being able to check in on the healthier patients. It's actually our business model. It created our companies and it's been working. And so as we were going through this transition, particularly the first year, one of the most rewarding things for me was seeing the physicians be able to go back to what they, I think a lot of them thought they would be doing when they started. Right. 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 Which is a patient calls them at eight o'clock and they're actually incented to take that call. In fact, all of our physicians give their patients their personal cell phone number. So you you can contact our physicians 20, not an answering machine. You can call the doctor. And when it rings, the phone is on his or her hip. Yeah. Yeah, that's unique. Again, it reminds me, I keep bringing it up, but it just feels so personal. It reminds me of education because we lose a lot of teachers, especially at the K through 12, when they realize they don't get to spend time teaching. They're doing all this paperwork and all this other stuff. So finding ways to get the physicians back to what their passion is, that's pretty incredible. And all through a business model. So again, an important lesson, you know, we work with a lot of students that are in the health sciences because they're right. beginning to understand that they can apply business to healthcare and it's not a bad thing. It's not all about making money. Exactly. It can be, in your case, about allowing you to afford to do what mm-hmm. you really want to do. It's an absolute fact that the best healthcare is also the least expensive healthcare. So it's an absolute interesting. F- so I'll go through a couple of examples for you because I think it's important. If you can spend time with someone who is on the road to diabetes and teach them how to change their behaviors in life so that they don't get the diabetes, okay, the whole country wins. Right. 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 What we deal with with a senior population, people over 65, in our office, If it's Friday afternoon and it's five o'clock and a patient calls and says, you know, I'm feeling a little dizzy and I don't know, I just I'm just out of sorts. And our office on a Friday afternoon at five o'clock will tell that patient to come in. Mm -hmm. Most likely that patient is dehydrated and we'll handle that in the office. First of all, it's much more convenient for the patient. Right. Absolutely. But that 
costs might be $130 or something like that. That same patient could very easily end up in the emergency room. Right. The emergency room is going to cost the patient, us, the country, $5,000 after it's all said and done, if they get admitted, et cetera. Right. 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 So there's this huge, huge delta between really providing quality service and health care to people versus not doing it. You know, another example is you can have the same surgery done in a hospital. You get a partial knee done in a hospital and it will cost let's say $30,000. You can get the same partial knee replacement surgery done in an outpatient surgery center. Now watch this, using the same doctor, the same anesthesiologist, and the same equipment. You're just in a different building with the OR in the outpatient setting. And instead of the $30,000, it'll cost you about $8,000. And these two ORs can be across the street from each other. So this is not unknown to us. This is not something that should be news to people who follow our industry, but it really is about the capability to manage that so that people are getting the care that they need in the setting that's best for everyone. Everybody. Wow. That's really powerful. That's powerful. And what's fascinating about that, again, is bringing together business models with healthcare and, you know, crossing that intersection. That's where the power in that is, at least as, as I'm listening to you. Yeah, and, and employers should really be all over health insurance companies, physician networks, and hospitals to deal with this because it just doesn't make any sense, right? Particularly the ORs being across the street from each other, right? right. That's an absolute fact. It's happening right here in Tampa right now. It's happening in St. Pete. You know, it's happening in Orlando. And at the end of the day, the employers should be concerned, but also all of us as users of the healthcare system need to be concerned because the money, at least part of the money that the employers are using to pay the health care premiums are coming out of our paychecks. Right. Exactly. Exactly. This is so fascinating. I could talk about it forever. I want to make a little transition. Sure. Over years, you've managed thousands of employees. Mm-hmm. And many entrepreneurs find managing and the operational side of a business very, very challenging. And I know I'm the same one, same way at times. In fact, I heard something once from an entrepreneur. He said, I never want to hire anybody I have to manage. And I get it. I totally get it. I want people to take ownership. We all do. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with a lot of people, and even in the industry that you're talking about where you're dealing with changing mindset all the time, because you really... You really are. You know, what kinds of, what things have you learned? Are there a few things you could share with our audience about managing people, you know, Mm -hmm. getting inside of people's heads and getting them all marching to the direction that they need to go and getting all those operational pieces put together? So, of course, the most important thing that you can do as a leader is make sure you're hiring the right people. At the end of the day, though, the folks that make up your company, if you're doing it right, are pretty much going to be an exact reflection of the people who make up the community that the company is in. So, for example, it's much more difficult for us to hire tech folks in a rural area that we're in. So this is a real challenge for us today versus if we're hiring for the work we're doing in Orlando. Mm -hmm. The two communities are different. And most important, what's going on in like the social 
kind of fabric of the community also matters. So we have a part of our business that's in an area where the opioid epidemic is prevalent. And so when we're hiring and we're doing our background checks, that's an issue. So I guess I just want to start by saying that your companies, the people that you hire in your company should pretty much reflect the community that you're in. And so then as a company, we have to take responsibility for trying to help shape and mold the community to be better, whether it's already a great community or a good community and we're trying to make it great, you know, go from good to great, or whether there are issues in the community and we have to try to deal with those issues and help create this pool of folks, of people who can, in fact, come to work and do a good job and be productive for society. Having said that, as a leader, modeling is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. So there are formal leaders who have titles. And so obviously it's important for them. But also, you know, we all know those people who come to work every day and they're just full of joy and energy, and it's infectious. Well, they're leaders too. So when you're putting together your strategy, and as the CEO or VPs or directors, folks who have their own entities even within companies to run, everyone should have a strategy for how they are building and driving the culture, which should accrue to the company's culture. The one thing that I always say to my team is that I absolutely reserve the right to determine what our company culture is going to be. Nobody else gets to do it except me. And if you have a company with 30 employees in it or 10 employees in it, then, yeah, you can say, I'm going to hire these employees that I'm not going to have to manage. I'm not going to have to watch them. But when you have a company that has 2000 employees, I can, again, we go back to where we started from. If you're doing it right and fair and hiring the way you're supposed to, they're going to reflect the community that you serve. So you have to give them thematic kind of things that they can hang on to, stories and examples of what matters. And so that when they're making a decision, they know that at the end of the day, if they can say to their manager, this was the right decision because it helped our patient in our case, because look, the patient, it was the best thing for the patient, then they're going to be okay. And so in fact, that's one of our thematic things. If you ever get concerned, if you ever get confused, do what's best for the patient and the patient will be okay and you'll be okay. It's kind of a home base for us. It has to be different for different companies, right? right? But for us, that's our home base, right? I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Do what's right for the patient. Right. I love that. So it's really having a superordinate goal or mission. I think Guy Kawasaki called it a mantra that everybody can buy into. Uh And I love your philosophy about the community. You've been very active in the community. You give back in a lot of ways. And I love the way you think about that because it's kind of like having a sense of place, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have that sense of place. And that's pretty special. I know you're on our board here Mm -hmm. at the Lowe Center. Mm -hmm. We appreciate that. And you've been on a lot of boards. How do you find time when you're leading these companies, but you're still giving back to the community and engaged? And how do you find time for all that? Do you have any techniques, tricks for that? I can't say that I have any special tricks. In fact, when it came time for me to start Aegis, I literally just went off the grid 
So I actually gave up a lot of my board seats that I loved, but I knew I had to focus on getting this company started. Right. And then it grew so fast. And then what begins to happen is, in addition to your initial kind of pro forma goals, now you have people and lives that you're responsible for. And so we just got to a place in 2019 where we felt like, you know what, now we can start to get back out and help influence and change and build up the communities that we serve. And so that's why you see me and some of the other folks on our team were out in the community again. So it's kind of, you have to look at your career and building companies. It's kind of a cycle, right? And you have to look at it long term. Sid, I know you to be a very positive person. Every time I'm around you, you're one of those positive person that makes me feel good. Uh, So thank thank you for that. But I'm guessing that on your way to success, you've also had to deal with failure with challenges. You know, this is something we talk about a lot with our students because we want them to understand that outcomes are not going to be always what they anticipate and expect. And do you have any thoughts that you would share with our audience around that? So for me personally, I'll make a comment for me personally and then just talk about, you know, failure in general. Some people, for me, I, I feel like as long as I am doing What I think is right, if things don't work out, then they just don't work out. And I mentioned earlier, I'm a farm boy from the Midwest. So the way I started life in terms of what a hard day's work is and material things is very different from what I see now in my life and living in an urban area. So my wife will tell you she's never seen me unhappy or she's never seen me really sad other than, you know, personal losses. Right. And it really, for me, comes from my foundation. So it's pretty hard for me after working the way I did from being a child to 18. It's just difficult for me to find anything to make me unhappy in my work today. Right. But have I failed? Yeah. And in fact, I think one of my secrets with regards to failure is that it shouldn't get you down early on. If you study business, you'll see every time you fail, that's such a good thing. And so if you if you actually know that and believe it, it's just a little small bump in the road if you have a failure. If I think about one of my biggest failures, it may not seem big, but it's made a lasting impression on me. That first job that I had. I would give presentations in front of large groups and I was leaving that role to go to another role. So I was still in the job, but I was going to another job at another company and I gave a presentation and I didn't prepare for it. And normally I would prepare, I would practice, I would actually walk, pace, you know, I would count the steps to do this, that, depending on the step. Normally I would just prepare and I did it and it was horrible. Think about the comedian that you went to see who was on stage and bombed the worst <laughs> that you've ever seen. And that was that was me. We've all been there. Yeah, it was it was really bad. But what I learned is that prepare the opportunity will come and you'll knock the opportunity out of the park. And so I can't even tell you the year that was in. It was probably 1989 or 1990. But it sticks with me today. I remember that day. I can't say I think about it every day. When you've got a big pitch to give, I bet you remember. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely remember it. But I, I think about it just every day in the context of get up in the morning and you need to be prepared to meet your responsibilities. You owe it. 
to the people that you serve to meet your responsibilities. I love that. That's a great lesson. It's a great lesson. I think maybe Abraham Lincoln said, I will prepare myself and my opportunities will come. I think it was him, but it's a great way to look at the world. This is such a, a wonderful quote that you just shared. This thing about preparing yourself and knowing or having faith, believing that an opportunity is going to come. And when your preparation clashes with that opportunity, that is success. So maybe it was Lincoln, but yeah, so that's the definition right there. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, you mentioned your childhood. I grew up on a a small farm as well in Mm -hmm. rural West Virginia. Mm -hmm. You were in Southern Illinois. Southern Illinois, yeah. And you had a few more siblings than me. I think there were 11 children, eight boys. Where did you fall in that? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. Okay. You know, there's all kinds of theories about that, but we won't get into that. (laughs) So you mentioned already that you worked hard and that that set the stage for your life. Were there any other life lessons you took from growing up in a rural farm community that you would be willing to share with our audience that's been impactful? I'll share two if I can get. The first one truly is, If you ask people, and I've done this before, you're in a room and you ask people, well, what does it take to be successful? And they'll say education, true. Actually, a lot of times people say things like networking, you know, who you know. If you're in a room with entrepreneurs, a lot of times they'll say capital, passion. And growing up the way that I grew up, the first words out of my mouth is that it takes hard work. And I truly believe that hard work will cover almost anything. It'll wash over almost any other issue that you have. You really can work hard and be successful. The other thing is just keep, a lot of times people say, keep chopping wood. I'll give you an example. This is a true story. One day I'm in a field and I'm planting soybeans. And back then you planted soybeans different. So only farmers will understand this part of the story. But you had a planter, they had different roles on them, right? So we had this planter. It was a six-row planter. It was awesome because it was the biggest planter we ever. It was the best. And so I'm planting with this six-row planter, and it breaks. The other planter that we had was a two-row planter. Hmm. So, so three times as long. So, right. So when the planter broke, my dad comes. He we load the plant the six-row planter on the truck. He's going to take it to get it fixed. And so I think at the time, you know, I'm a young guy, so Great I played sports, right? So I think, well, I'm going to go swimming in the creek, or I'm going to go play basketball. <laughs> But that's not what happened. He brought out the two-row planter. And we hooked up the two-row planter, and he went to get the six-row planter fixed. And during that time, I planted, and it was actually our biggest field, too. I'm planting with this two-row planter. So the end of the day, here comes my father with the six-row planter. I'm just finishing the field, that one particular field with the two-row planter. And the sky just opens up, and it starts to rain. And it rained so that we could not get back in the field for two weeks. Wow. And so what I learned from that is that my father, with his sixth grade education, knew to just keep going. Right. And by doing that, we got that field planted. Yeah, what's that cliche? You got to make hay while the sun shines. There you go. There you go. You got to plant soybeans (laughs) while the sun is shining. That's right. That's right. 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 Well, you know, that's a great lesson. We can't let ourselves be derailed when, you know, if we think about our technology, right? I'm sure you've been in this situation when you're making a presentation or something and the technology stops. You can't just stop, you have to keep going. So, 
Great lessons. And did you always dream of getting off the farm and getting away? I did. I don't know about you, but. Yeah, what a great question. Yes. <laughs> so I would be on my tractor going up and down the field, right? And the planes would come over, right? You know, they call the middle of our country flower country. And I would just say to myself, I have no idea what's going to happen when I finish high school, but I'm going to get on one of those planes. That, that's exactly how I felt. I'm not going to be here. I didn't know what it was. And you went to the Navy, right? Yeah. And, then, and you know what's interesting? All I want to do now is go back home, is go back to my farm. <laughs> if something important is going to happen with my company, let's say in June, I will literally go back home and just hang out a week before, because it reminds me of the things that are really important. You know, people shake hands and they do a business right. deal. Right. Literally, right. they shake hands and do a business deal. And because it's such a small community, I'm going to see you. I'm going to see you every other day, if not every day. So I'm not going to embarrass myself by shaming my family's name. I find that it helps me when I come back to this, you the, get the grounded, city. so yeah. to speak. Yeah, by the, exactly. Do you ever plant soybeans when you? <laughs> I don't. We rent the farm out, but I try to do a lot of. You know, we don't have horses anymore, but until recently, we tried to do a lot of riding of horses, and there's a lot of post hole digging right. that goes get, on. Get out yeah. in nature yeah. and do something. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. I could talk forever. I do have one more question I wanted to ask you. If you had some advice that you could leave with our listeners, this has been like a great conversation, and there's been so many important things that you've talked about. What would that be? And it's always tough for everybody. Like, what's the one last piece of advice you might leave? Well, you know, of course, based on our conversation today, I would say whatever you're doing, do your best. Just work hard and do your best. And that will naturally take you to the next thing, the thing that you might be dreaming about. But until you get there, until you get to this place that you've been dreaming about, your kind of vision state, just stay focused, work hard, do your best. Be the best at what do you're doing. Whatever you're doing today, be the best at what you're doing today. Love it. Sid, where can our listeners find you, connect with you, learn more about your business? Well, believe it or not, I'm not all over social media. Maybe I should be. We are on LinkedIn. Of course, uh, Aegis has a website and so that people can find us there. Thank you, Sid. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>